It is. You do a lot of stuff, though. You do a lot of stuff. So, Viv, thank you so much for uh, giving me some of your time. I know you just finished up your tea. That's it. No, Legend. would you be anywhere else? <laughs> Mate, you can, you can have your tea on this thing, you know. We could have pushed it back. We could have done some things. I, I, should, I should have done it. Yeah. I should have just sat here with my dinner. <laughs> yeah, smashing out a lasagna or something. <laughs> with the garlic bread, of course. Mate, <laughs> I actually had pasta and garlic bread. Have you been watching me? <laughs> I am a magician. Exactly. You know what I mean? I'm man, I know things. I am everywhere. Um, <laughs> mate, you do a lot of stuff. You do a lot of stuff. Yeah. What? First of all, what do you do? Second of all, how'd you start? And third of all, why? Oh, let's start with the why. So I grew up in Scotland in the 1970s. I am the adult child of a substance misuse parent. So there was loads of things as I was growing up that just didn't make sense. Um, there was loads of things that happened in my house that didn't happen in my friend's house. Mm. There was... Um, just loads of different stuff. Do you know, there was, you know, when we're born, we have two needs. The need to be authentic and the need to be attached. And if you're constantly fighting for attachment, you lose your authenticity because when authenticity and attachment come face to face, um, attachment wins every time. So I kind of lost who I was as a person. And as I grew up, I, I was a bit of a chameleon. I could kind of suss who people wanted me to be and I could be that person. Um, I could talk my way in and out of most things. I became um, quite skilled in finding ways to cope with the pain, ways to cope with the disconnection, um, everything from food to sex to drugs to alcohol to gambling, you know, anything that just kind of made that pain of not knowing who I was just stop. And the various different, um, you know, recollections of the experiences that I'd had and how they seemed to be so different to other people's experiences. And I went for counselling. And when I started talking, um, the woman kind of looked at me and then looked at me and then sort of sat back and she was like, I, I just don't know what to say to you. So the voice inside my head was like, Viv, shut up. Nobody's interested in your drama. Like, take your shit somewhere else. Like, you're freaking this woman out. She doesn't know what. So that silence of trauma just kept me and held me where I was. I went to go for CBT. And the girl who I'd done CBT with, the first session, I thought, she's talking to me like I'm stupid. And, of course, one of my parts believed I was stupid because... I never had the ability to focus at school. I was skiving school. I, I didn't see the relevance in exams and stuff like that because that wasn't really what I was shown within the house. Um, so I kind of said, oh, do you know, I'll go back for a second session. So I went back and she started talking about these processes and these strategies that I had absolutely no idea of. So again, that part of me was like, this is because you're stupid. What, what made you think that you could do that? So again, that internal voice, that bully on the inside. Um, and then I just kind of sat back in the silence of trauma for a, for a while. And then I almost died in 1999. My body just said, we're not doing this anymore. So I went from being slightly unwell to completely unconscious in the space of about six hours. And um, 
and, and when I came back to in the hospital and I was in intensive care and I could just hear the beeping of the machines, again, that voice was just like, you deserve this. Look at the state of you. Like, why are you, you, you should have your kids taken off you. You're a terrible mother. You're never going to amount to any, and it was incessant. But there was another voice there that was like, you need to stop this or you're going to die. And I knew, you know, I had, I had two children at that point and I just thought, you know, their dad wouldn't be any use. And like, I, I need to, I need to get my shit together here. I need to do something. Um, I just didn't know what to do. And I always remembered there was a really famous quote and I think it's Henry Ford that says it. And it's, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. And it was that realization of, I need to try something different. I need to push past fear to get to the other side of it just to see what's there. Um, so I signed myself up for doing loads of challenges. I walked over 100 miles of the Great Wall. Um, I raised over 40,000 pounds, jumped out an aeroplane at 12,000 feet, jumped off buildings, done sponsored dances, done sponsored silences, which was the hardest thing of all. And just thought, you know, what? I'm just going to raise money and just help. And it was all helping kids whose lives have been impacted by substance misuse, mental health, um, or physical, you know, physical um, capabilities. So, and then I started working with young people in the care system. And I just thought, wow, these kids make sense to me. These kids make perfect sense to me. And other people were going, why are they doing this? And why are they doing that? And I'm like, because their nervous system's wired to the moon, mate. They're no, they're no nice and calm and relaxed. They, they thrive in chaos and drama. Like trauma and drama just go together like, like that. Um, so I found I had this real affinity with young people and then you know from there I decided to you know I, I got really pissed off and how people approached these young people and how the um, how services you know were calling themselves at that point in Scotland we came up with this term corporate parent and it really just got on my goat because I was like corporate means business parent means you know to nurture and care for like how can you be a corporate parent um and I remember sitting with a social worker and she was saying yeah but that's what we do you know it's the business of parenting and I was like okay then I said many kids have you got in your care she said she had eight and I said what size are their feet she was like well I, I'm I would, I'm not really very sure like, when's their birthdays what time of the day were they born at and she was like well and I was like that's a parent that's a parent, someone who can rhyme off that information. We're no corporate parents. Like if we're corporate parents, we wouldn't be putting these kids in high rise flats when they're 16 years old, you know, surrounded by, you know, people dealing drugs, surrounded by, you know, ladies who have no option but to sell themselves to pay for their drug habits. You know, huge areas, areas of high crime, areas of high poverty. We wouldn't just be kind of brushing our hands at age 16. So I went to college and I studied health and social care. And I looked at what are the underpinning values and models of our health and social care system. And I quickly realized that we're kind of driven by a medical model. And it's like, you have a set of symptoms, you can tick these boxes, you will get this medication. This medication will then allow you to have this benefit, this benefit. So I quickly sort of realized that something's fundamentally wrong here. We've lost the essence of authenticity. We've lost the essence of self in community. We've lost that, that connected consciousness with each other. We're slowly but surely being put into silos where it's about individuality and it's about keeping people away from people. 
Um, I then went to university to study social psychology. I got really interested in social sciences and I got really interested, sorry, studied social science, got really interested in social psychology. Got really interested in group dynamics and how, um, you know, how we can be influenced by somebody else's creation of an echo chamber. How if we hang about with somebody long enough, we can start to take on their beliefs and their values, knowing that deep down fundamentally, it's not what we really think or feel, but it helps us be part of that group. It helps us create that, that, that collectiveness. Um, and then I was kind of going, but hang on, I'm a group of people. Inside me is, as I said before, you know, I was a chameleon. Inside me is Vivian the daughter, Vivian the mum, Vivian the friend, Vivian the drug dealer, Vivian the, the dancer in the nightclub, Vivian the barmaid, Vivian the mother, Vivian the like, all these different roles. And I was like, you know, I wonder what it would be like to just call time and just like, right, we need a board meeting. So this was me to myself. It was like, right, all of you that are in there, we need a board meeting. We need to, we need to, we need to assess and you know identify someone who is can be the CEO of this messy head, who can really kind of take. So I started kind of using all that on a personal level. In 2004, um, a guy that I worked with had said um, about trying flotation therapy, and I was like, "Give it a go, you know, see what it's like." And my mind was completely blown absolutely blown so flotation involves 25 centimeters of body temperature water and half a ton of epsom salt the minute i went in there i was my head was like what are you doing in here you need to be in test schools you've got work to do you've got that email did you send this did you do that blah blah, blah. and then just silence and it was all gone it was just me and my heartbeat <clears throat> and i had this vision i had this vision of um you know me being somebody like i could see myself i was um, I, like I was on a stage, I was I was doing all these different things. I'd never been able to visualize that before, and it made me realize that the most powerful nation in the world is the imagination. We carry it around every single day between our ears, and we haven't got a clue how to use it properly. Um, so it really inspired my imagination. Went on and done all these different things. Studied, um, got really interested in neurolinguistic programming. Went and studied CBT because I thought I'd maybe just given it a bad rap. Um, turns out I've no, it's not the thing for me. It works for, for some people, it completely changes their life, but but no for me. Um, as I got interested in saying NLP, went to London, studied with Richard Bandler um, and Paul McKenna. Got really interested in hypnosis, done some studying, some training with Paul McKenna in hypnosis. Came to Northern Ireland, came back to Northern Ireland, done um, a diploma in clinical hypnotherapy done a master practitioner in timeline therapy, hypnosis and NLP. Met, went back to London, done some training with Paul McKenna, met two doctors from New York who'd invented a thing called the Havening Technique. That just absolutely blew my mind. It was just like all of these memories and all of these things that had such an emotional charge, suddenly I had the power within my own hands and my own arms and my own face to rewrite this, these neural pathways and take the emotional component from the memories where they were harvested and, and just make it sell. Um, and then just got into, you know, kept meeting people who were like, you know, have you heard of this? Have you heard of that? And I was looking at it and going, that makes sense. I'll go and do that. So throughout all of this, um, in 2010, I had moved to Northern Ireland. In 2015, I got an opportunity um, to join up with this programme called Go For It. So I went for that, I went on that. And it was just like how to set up a business. And I was like, I've got this idea. 
do you know, open up a float centre, use all the skills and the tools that I've got in unison with float therapy, really draw back people's layers and get them to really sit with their ugly truth, do you know, get them to get their skeletons out their closets and polish them up and be really proud of them. Not to be going around carrying this big bag of dishonesty, this big bag of stunted authenticity. Like just sit in your truth, like own your shit. Do you know, they're no battle scars. These are badges of honour if you if you treat them properly. Do you know these experiences? And you can do that. Um, and the more I was speaking to people, the more I realised the people that I was working with were people who had been sexually abused by the church. There were people who had been um, abused in children's homes. There were people who had been part of paramilitary organisations as a 14, 15 year old who were now in their 40s and kind of trying to pull away from all of that. People who'd been in the IRA, the UVF, the UDA. It was people whose lives had been impacted by their dad being in the RUC when the troubles were over here in Northern Ireland. Like, it was, it was kind of, it was, it was stuff that I was just like, wow, this is this is real shit. Like people have like, and just getting people to kind of go, do you know what? You survived all of that. Like this is who who's your who's who's your truth? What's who are you underneath all of this? And if you remove all of that, um, so started working with people to help them to remove the emotional drivers from the experiences, and in doing so, um, found that do you know I have a bit of a niche in working with people who have had some really. Um, you know, really sort of soul shocking experiences. And the amount of people that were like, oh, I don't know if I could do your job. And blah. But for me, it's like, this is a call and it's not a job. It's like, and, do you know, I go to work in the morning, I step into hydroes, close my eyes, I take a big deep breath. And I imagine it's like a, and it's like a shield that goes all the way around me. And I call it my holistic armor. And it means that I can hold space for people. I can hold space for people. I can challenge them. I can have courageous conversations with them that they go, what the fuck do you mean by that? And I'm like, whoa, check what's just happened to you. Like, what's happening with your nervous system right now? And they're like, what? Like, just stop, think, stop and tip your breath. Like, what's happening for you right now? Is this, is this how you act when you're around people? Is this... Could, could this potentially be why things are going the way that so really just sitting and being truthful and honest with people letting them put into that space me seeing them me you know it's not about judging people like like I like for most of my life I was judged you know it was like oh there's the there's the drunk woman's kid or there's a 15 year old that's been running away or there's a 17 year old that's pregnant and married or there's the like all of these different judgments so I can't, I'm nobody to judge anybody, you know, and I think, you know, and, and not that I'm not even going to use the term non-judgmental, just aware of the judgments that I'm making and when I'm making them and sharing them and saying, wow, do you know when you said that, I was thinking this or this brought this up in me. And then, and it just creates that huge, open, honest discussion that nine times out of 10 people go, I've never told anybody this. Um, so I then kind of through, you know, doing various different things at networking and entrepreneur programs and joining like, like I was at the opening of an envelope for about three years of my life, just networking and going, do you know what, tell me about business because none of you here know anything about flotation. I've got that shit nailed. Like I, I, I know that I've, I've been out to the States. I'd worked with some of the greatest minds in the float world, um, but I never knew anything about business. So I was just like a sponge, you know, I just went to, and the people who were in the corner who spoke to nobody, I made sure that they were the people that I went and spoke to because they turned out to be some of the most interesting people who were either really extrovert or they were neurodiverse or they were, there was just so much depth to these people. Um, 
And it just, it, it, it just totally lit me up. So then people were saying, can you come and speak at our event? And I was like, yeah. So I stepped into this public speaking realm um, and went and then done lots of different conferences and seminars, talking about trauma, talking about disconnection, talking about addiction, um, just talking about loads of things that, that I was really passionate about them and that meant something to me and that I knew by sharing would get people to sit and go, I never thought it like that. And see when you get somebody to even consider, I never thought it like that. You've instantly kicked a door open inside their brain that takes them to somewhere else that they can then look at possibility. We, we, a lot of people talk about hope, this great big thing of hope, and if you've not got any hope, and but you have to have possibility before you can have hope. You have to believe something's possible to be hopeful that it might actually happen. So I believe that you know possibility is the breadcrumbs of hope. Um, I then got approached by a guy and asked if I would write um, a, a chapter for a book. So I wrote a chapter for his book. And then during COVID, um, one of my friends who has written multiple best-selling books, she'd came and asked me if I would write a chapter in her book. And it was to inspire people during COVID. It was to sort of say, you know, we've, we've been through this shit and this is where we are now. You know, COVID's not going to, like, it's, it's just something else that we're going through. If collectively we can understand each other's experiences rather than say, oh, my God, like, because you don't believe this, you're a tin hat, or because you do believe that, you're a government supporter, and blah, blah, blah. It's just like, why don't we all just recognise that this is something that none of us have experienced before? But we can all look at it from a very different perspective. It doesn't change what it is. It's just the way we see it. Um and then after that, I was approached by a documentary company and I made a documentary last year. So I've been going around, I launched it at two of the biggest theatres here in, in Northern Ireland. And I'm about to launch it again, um, sorry, three of the biggest theatres and I'm about to launch it again in the university here. But I've been taking it into communities and working with young groups, groups of young women whose boyfriends have been involved in paramilitaries or who have you know, been done for domestic violence or who've been selling drugs or who currently serving a prison sentence. I've took it into communities and I've worked with young men who have, um, they've already been in, they've been through the justice system. I've took it in and worked with, you know, mums, I've took it in and worked with community groups, I've taken it into Citibank, I've taken it into, you know, a few different corporates. But again, it's to raise that conversation about honesty and openness. You know, there's three things we don't talk about, which is mental health, finance and sex. If you have an issue in any situation in life, it's around one of these things. But we did talk about it because as a kid, we're told, oh, sex is dirty or sex is bad or like, did I talk about that? Or, you know, if you're caught, you know, playing with yourself or whatever, it's like, oh, don't, you don't do that. And but so you believe, so you have that shame based. And then finance, it's always like, oh, no, you keep that to yourself and never let anybody know how much you've got or what you're going to do or how skint you are, how much debt you're in. Or but, And a lot of the, over here in Northern Ireland, there's a huge suicide rate. And a lot of it is about, is about finance and debt. A lot of it is about sexuality. And the biggest majority is about mental health. So I'm on a bit of a crusade to, um, just to get people talking, to get people to just, like, I, I think, you know, one of the things I used to really be good at is small talk. And now I'm just like, yeah, 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 I heard that shit. Right, tell me about you. What's your, what's your fears? What is your deep, dark secrets? Um, so, so I, so I'm not sure if that's answered all three questions in one, starting off with my why, but it's just to get people to realise my mission is, and my purpose is 
just to get people to realise that, you know, this is not a trial run. This is no, you did come back for a second shot at this, you know, and from the very, very first time you look in the mirror until the very last time you look in the mirror, you're going to see exactly the same person. If you like that person or you're not authentic and true to that person and honour them, uh, there's you're going to have a tough time. Do you know what I mean? So, um, so yeah, that's me. That's a beautiful story, mate. <laughs> Thank you. Thank that you. really is a beautiful story, and I think uh, I think people get caught up though, right? Like they they believe that what happened to them or the feeling that they they had because of it is who they are, rather than what happened to them and what they feel. You know, like a human being. Yeah, we're the same person, but the character's going to develop. You know, we're supposed to progress right through this mm -hmm. thing, right? Rather than I am stagnant, I'm born, I am got everything I've. I'm ever, ever going to need and then that's it everything that happens to me is my fault that's who I am you're like uh, we all go down wrong paths guys like but, but do you know what do you know what happens Alex is people get stuck in a memory so say for example you are um say for example you grew up and your 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 mum um is violent and abusive towards your dad and you are only four or five years old and you're sitting out in the stairs one night and you hear your mum like, you're a fucking other, shouting and bawling. And you hear your dad screaming, stop it, stop it. Like the wee one's in the hall. Or, and then you hear a bang and a clatter. And you're stuck on the stairs. You're only four or five years old. And you're frozen with fear. Your whole nervous system has went into sympathetic. And you're in that fight or flight. There's five things. There's fight, flight, freeze, flop, or friend. So when we have that heightened system, we go into one of these, one of these modes um, so we get stuck, we get stuck and freeze and we're frozen on the stairs and we're thinking, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. And then we get older and we think we start to cognitively develop a lot more. We start to be able to strategically think. We start to be able to have a linear process and we think, why didn't I just go in there and shout at her and tell her to shut up? God, I'm a really crap daughter. Like I should have done that for my dad. Like, or, or, and, and then as you get older, it's like, I, I cannot believe that I allowed that to happen and why did that so we start to take responsibility because in that moment we were frozen and when we talk about that event we're like oh I remember I was sitting on the stairs and we're back in the stairs so the inner child is stuck and frozen so sometimes what can happen is if we are then out and about and somebody starts to get violent or aggressive we're back being that four-year-old in the stairs. But this time we're no sitting, we start off frozen and then we go, who the fuck are you talking to? And, but, and we're up in somebody's face. We're no the adult that they see in front of them. We're that wee kid on the stairs that felt so frozen and so afraid that they weren't able to do anything. So in that moment, you're driven by that four-year-old. You have the cognitive capacity of the four-year-old. You're just like, this is what I should have done. Or for example, do you know, you may be sexually abused as a kid. So your first sexual experience is at a very, very young age. So then that can have huge implications for you as an adult and how you perceive yourself, how you perceive sex, how you perceive the opposite sex, the same sex. Like there's so many different things. Do you know, we're always who we were when. And what tends to happen is so many people say, oh, you're getting on like a child. Or they'll say, oh, you're acting like a five-year-old. Well, of course you are because you're operating from a program that was installed at that age that you've never went back and challenged, that you've never went back and said, okay, I see you. You've never went back and done that inner child work and freed that part of you that's been stuck in that place for a long time. And I think it's so important that people realize that 
It's not that you're a bad person. I don't believe any of us have bad parts. I believe that the experiences that we've had can shape and mould the responses that we give or the reactions that we give to certain events. But, you know, we're not our story. We are who we choose to become. And some of us choose to become that story. Mm. That's beautiful. We are who we choose to become. Mm-hmm. That's mm. it. And I think for... You know, for a good part of my life, do you know, I believed I was that vulnerable, um, lost, confused, um, needy wee girl who who was always kind of looking for someone else to rescue me, looking for someone else. So I drew people into my life that wanted to domineer and control and provide and be the big and of course inside me was this wee girl who was like do you know what my first my um, ex-husband um like he we went to high court he had tried to murder me had kidnapped her son and um but you know when I first got together with him my gut was churning my heart was like and it was kind of going do you know what this is because uh, I, this is because I love him this is because of but what I realized now was it was my authenticity, my gut feeling going, get the fuck away as quick as you possibly can. Mm. But because I had cut myself off from my authenticity, I didn't know my authentic drive. I didn't know my gut. I didn't know my own gut. I just was like, oh my God, this guy's like, everybody's scared of him and he's going to look after me and, and, and everyone's going to be great. And that changed really, really quickly to where, and then I went into another relationship very similar um, because I never learned the process I never learned I just kept doing the same thing and again it's like back to what I said at the beginning if you always do what you've always done you'll always get what you've always got and mm-hmm. it was all about it's all about trying something different you know I always say to people like try something different if you've tried that and you know if if what you're looking at never changes and what has happened to you never changes change the way you look at it because it's the one yeah. thing you do have control over perception is reality at the end of the day yeah. And that's it. That's Baby, it. There's a great thing. No, no, cool. There's a great thing in NLP. It's called the map is not the territory. So it means that, you know, what's going on in here is not actually what you're navigating it here. So you and I could go to London. I could go for the shopping. You could go because you're a, a train spotter. So you could be on the underground and we could be navigating exactly the same territory. But you're doing it under the ground watching the trains and I'm doing it above the ground looking at the shops. So our mm. perception is completely different. Do you know, did you go to London? Yeah. Were you near Piccadilly? Yeah. Did you see? No, I've never seen that. Did you see the train tracks? Oh, no, I never went in the train. So we're in exactly the same territory, but just our map of the world is completely different. They've got three questions. Yeah. What's the greatest piece of life advice you've ever received? The greatest piece of life advice I've ever received, and this is probably a really corny one, is always eat your pudding first. Mm. Because you just never know what's going to happen between the main course and dessert. (laughs) It's the true sign of an adult, right? You eat the dessert first. (laughs) Just because you can. (laughs) Your mum's not over your shoulder just to give you a backhand. <laughs> That's it. Have your afters first. I like that. What's the worst piece of life advice you've ever received? The worst piece of life. Um, sit down and shut up. Mm. And how many people hear that? All the time. How many times as a child in your informative years between zero and seven, we don't have the cognitive capacity 
to really know what's right, wrong, good, bad, safe, dangerous, truth, lies. If we're constantly told sit down and shut up, we believe that we that we believe that we stand for nothing and our voice is not important. And the more we're told that, sit down and shut up, sit down and shut up, the more our our like entrepreneurship, our authenticity, our our, our ability to communicate, all of that is stifled when we're, when we're told that, sit down and shut up. Like we spend ages telling our kids, oh, I wish they would walk and I wish they would talk. And then we spend years telling them, sit down and shut up. So that's probably the worst advice I've ever been given. Last question, what are the three words you would tell your younger self? Um, three words I would tell my younger self is, oh, can I get five? <laughs> I'm always pushing the boundaries, always pushing the boundaries. Yeah, you might as well write me an essay while you're there, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, you may have five. So the three, first three would be I love you and that, the two bonus ones would be you matter. Why? Because I think I grew up thinking that I didn't matter. Um, I grew up thinking that my existence was about everybody else. Just before I was born, um, my mum had had, so my sister, there's five years between me and my older sister. And when my mum had my older sister, she then had two miscarriages, three miscarriages, two or three miscarriages. And she had a baby who was born a wee boy and she just always wanted a wee boy. He died when he was six weeks old. He died of a perforated ulcer. So I then came along, the doctors kept referring to him. So my mum thought she was having a wee boy. And uh, of course, when I was born, as you can see, that never quite worked out. And um, one of the first sort of lines that, I've, that I heard when I was first born was, oh, I wanted a wee boy. Because my mum was grieving and longing for the wee boy that she'd lost. So when you look at epigenetics and you look at um, transgenerational trauma, and you look at um, you know these various different things that are written for you before you even get here. Do you know, I was nurtured in the womb of death. And you know, I was born. You know, at the expectations of my birth. You know, I, I, I crushed them the minute I was born because my mum. So my mum went into this big deep depression. When I was about um, you know six weeks old, my mum decided to stop picking me up unless I needed fed or changed because I screamed. First, like the minute I was born and for weeks and weeks I screamed up until I was about six months old. So the first, as I say, six weeks. Um, and then after that, I got lifted when I needed changed and fed and that was it. As a baby, when the only way you can communicate, you know, when you come out of the womb, you go from being amphibian to taking this big breath and being like, oh, my goodness, what's going on here? No, no one in hand, having no cognitive capacity. You know, but being able to have memories, emotions and recall, which has started to develop when we're about 12, 13 weeks gestation in the womb. And being able to, you know, use the only means of communication you have, which is to scream and put your hands out. And then if nobody comes, you quickly learn that you don't matter. So I think for me growing up to have heard you matter, and even like things like I see you, do you know, I just never felt seen. I never felt heard. I never felt, just felt like I didn't matter. So um, yeah, I think the words, you know, I love you, I would hear, 
but I, I, I think I needed to hear it from me. Do you know, I, I did hear it as I was growing up, but I never heard it from myself because every time I looked in the mirror, do you know, I wore national health glasses, so I thought I was ugly. I was, you know, you know, I, I wore, I wore hand-me-down clothes from my cousins because that's what you'd done in the seventies. Yeah. Um, but as, but it was just like not as because I'm not good enough to, you know, have that investment. I'm not good. So all of these things, you know, boil down to you believing that you that you just don't matter and that you're, that you are unlovable and that when people do tell you they love you, it's only lip service because they have to because they're your mum and dad. Okay. So to have heard it actually from myself, to have heard that internal voice go, I love you, rather as, you're shit, look at the state of you, everybody else is better than you, I think would have been would have been massive. And to hear you matter from myself, people around me, anybody, I think, would have made a huge, huge difference to my life. Mate, I can't thank you enough. You know, I know no, I only got look. like a, a wee snippet, you know, through a little conversation, but your life seems like poetry in motion seems oh, like everything happened you. for a reason mate you know and I, I i do believe that i don't necessarily believe in a fixed fate but i do believe everything happens for a reason mm. and, um, and i believe you make it happen do you know like i am uh i i'd study with gabor Matty, and i've been training with him for a year and a half now and um he's quite a well-known um physician and um do you know there's there's so many things that through working with him that that, he, that he's taught me and one of the things he sort of said is that you know when you're in this line of work you can only take someone as far as you've gone yourself and that's why so many people get stuck in therapy because the therapist is scrambling going well, they never taught me this in university or I never got this in my course or I'm not really very sure what to do now where if you're just on earth and authenticity then you know um, and that there was stuff that I just thought, you know, I'm, I've got hankering for something. I'm, like, there's something I need to resolve. Um, and and I was just coming up for 50. And uh, I was just like, I have a real calling for plant medicine. So um, I decided in the February that I was going to, you know, go on a plant medicine journey. And uh, decided in the February, decided to go uh, vegetarian and like pretty much within a couple of days, like so many different things happened that I was just going, right, just guide me. Whatever it is that you want me to do before I do this, just guide me. Um, and then I went and done a couple of ayahuasca ceremonies, done Campbell ceremonies, um, done a Bufo ceremony, just done lots of different things that supported me in just releasing deeper layers and then, you know, and then I went back into work and the things that came into my room, I was just like, wow, this is what this was about, Do you know? And I think so many of us struggle, so many of us fight against, I'm not doing that. I'm not wanting to go there. 